the Anthropology and Sin uh, class. The first week, we looked at the origin of sin. Uh, and then last week, we looked at the spread of sin. Um, and, and this week, we're going to be focusing our discussion on the nature of sin. And as I was considering how to teach this topic, it was, like I was just saying to Jocelyn before class, it was one of the hardest lessons I had to prepare for. Um, I, I couldn't get myself to prepare for this lesson in any academic way. Uh, I, I, you know, I, at the risk of sounding pedantic, I wanted to make sure that it was something that um, I did my very best to give it uh, the due justice that I feel like it deserved. And um, I really couldn't um, find a way to talk about sin or its nature without first discussing and considering the holiness of God. So we humans tend to minimize our sinfulness. And we all will readily admit that we're sinners, uh, but we tend to judge ourselves based off one another. If you feel like you're a bit sinful, it won't, you won't have to go very far to find somebody else who's probably more sinful than you in your perspective and make you feel a lot better about yourself. And so we have that tendency um, and, and we need to literally put on the lenses of God that he reveals in his word to see the situation of sin as it truly is. And when I say the lenses of God, I'm specifically pointing out the holiness of God. We, we need to see him aright in order to see our sin correctly. And John Calvin says, we do the same thing in estimating our own spiritual good. And, and here's what Calvin says. He says, as long as we do not look beyond the earth or the mud, we will be quite content with our own righteousness our own wisdom and virtue, and we will flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power. I'm sorry, the very straight edge to which we must be measured. That is what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. Uh, this quote by Calvin is what I hope in part to talk about today, that we must understand the holiness of God if we're tr truly to understand and get a grasp of how horrendous and evil sin is. Did you know that even one small sin is cosmic treason to God? Let me say that again. One small little white lie sin is absolutely an affront and cosmic treason to a holy God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we pray that we would be forgiven of our sins as we enter into your presence. Lord, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We ask that you would glorify your name here in this place, that I would decrease, Lord, and that you would increase, and that, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We pray that you would teach us to see our sin as you see it, that we may therefore see ourselves rightly before a perfectly holy God. Lord, grant us a glimpse of your holiness and your majesty and your purity and your goodness so that we may feel our corruption. We pray that we would hear from you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, the holiness of God, and if you have a handout, I would love for somebody to uh, turn to Isaiah 6, chapter 
I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Everybody turn to it, please, actually. And I want to begin by talking about Uzziah, um, who was a king in Jerusalem who began his reign at 16 years old. And Uzziah reigned for 50 plus years. Uzziah started his reign really well. He was, you could say, mentored by the prophet Zechariah. He sought the Lord with all of his heart when he was young. And the Lord prospered him as long as Uzziah sought him. But Uzziah grew powerful. Do you guys know the story of Uzziah? What was Uzziah's downfall? The sin of pride. He became elevated because the Lord prospered him, but he forgot the Lord and he departed from the Lord. And it all culminated in one incident that really changed the course of Uzziah's life. He had become so powerful and had left the Lord that he took incense, his own incense, took it to the altar of God and attempted to burn it before the Lord. And 80 Levite priests withstood him and said, Oh, Uzziah, it is not for you to burn incense at this altar. And as he disputed with them, after full well knowing it wasn't his place to do that, what happened to him? Yeah, on his forehead, leprosy broke out and he was thrown out not only of the, the Holy of Holies, but thrown out of the camp where he died in disgrace. Never seemingly to repent that we get uh, any account of in Scripture, no indication in Scripture he ever repented. And it's in this environment, and, and Uzziah, it's important in, in biblical history because Uzziah's reign really saw the last great revival of repentance towards God. And, and after that, it just began a downward trend of, of lack of seeking the Lord for the Jewish nation. And it's in that midst of this struggle where the Jewish nation or the, 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 the king of Judah lost their leader and God calls another man to rise up and to speak on his behalf. He is called to the office of prophet and it's the same prophet who said that, behold, in the future a virgin would conceive and give birth to a child, that his name would be Emmanuel, that this suffering servant would bear the sin of his people. His name was Isaiah, and the record of his call was found in this chapter in Isaiah 6. And could I have somebody read verses 1 through 7? Anybody want to take that? Oh, please. Yeah, go ahead. Praise God. The thing here is, if you look in the, on your notes there where it says the, set, the setting, we do not know for sure in Scripture, it doesn't say, 
if Isaiah, what he saw was a vision in the temple, that, that in that particular physical location, or if God himself pulled back the curtain and the veil and Isaiah gets a glimpse of heaven. My personal view is that, that God allowed Isaiah to see into the very inner sanctum of heaven, his throne. And um, the, the interesting thing here is that you see with the characters that are in this passage, that you see the Lord. And, and is anyone familiar when you see Lord, capital L, O, lowercase O-R-D, versus Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, what's happening there? What is the difference? Have you ever noticed that? The biblical writers are trying to say something to you, or I should say the, the translators are trying to indicate something. Anybody want to take that? Eric? Uh, the capital is that all capital is, is referring to um, God's covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh, yes. Yeah, very good. That's exactly right. So Yahweh is, think back to Moses asking, who should I say sent me? I am sent me. That is the holy covenant name of God. But Adonai is the most majestic describing name of God. That he is all powerful and majestic and worthy of glory. And so that is the word Adonai there. So there's, there's a little bit of a difference there. We see also uh, in this, we see the seraphim, who I don't think they're these like little cherubs that you see described. You know, I, I see them, and, and I, I heard Piper talk about this once, where it's like their wing is, their one wing is way off in the distance, so far you can't see, and the other wing is all the way over here, and you can't see the end of it as well. Why? Because when they... They shout the, 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 the praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The very foundations of the thresholds shook of heaven. And that can't be easy to do. And so I see these majestic creatures uh, literally covering over their eyes with one set of wings because they cannot look upon the holiness of God. I mean, these angels who have, who have never sinned are so overwhelmed by the vision of God's greatness and majesty. They have to cover their eyes. And they have another set where they're flying in the third set of wings that is over their feet, which is, does anyone want to take a guess at why there's wings over their feet? The Bible doesn't really say, but we can, we can venture guesses. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Your, the feet are an image or a, I guess you could say a picture of our creatureliness, right? And so when God says to Moses, take off your sandals, he's asking him to bare his feet and lower himself to the ground, not to elevate himself on his sandals before the Lord, but you go on the ground as a creature. And so... What's interesting is here is that this vision, we see Isaiah as the next character. And Isaiah, who is probably the most righteous man in Judah at this time, I don't know, I'm just taking a guess, but I could imagine he's up there being a prophet, says what in verse 5? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
Now that word lost in the ESV is kind of a weak translation. I prefer the older version. Uh, does anyone know an older word that was used to describe Isaiah's feeling here? Ruined is closer. Undone. Yes, undone. Do we have... Loud, do we still have any from last week? I can use this Sharpie, um, but I don't want to be that guy. <clears throat> can somebody fetch me one if possible? Thank you so much. We need to hide some of those things in here because I'm not sure who keeps taking them back. The word undone. Write that down. Undone. <clears throat> The idea of someone being undone, we, we, we tend to describe people who are healthy as being whole. Or when we see somebody, we say that person has it all together, right? There's a sense that they are like, or even the word integrity, that they, they have a oneness about who they are, okay? But when we think of being undone, if we can look at the scriptural psychology of what is being done here, is it's a disintegration of Isaiah. His mind is, thank you, brother. His mind is literally becoming unglued. Why? He's the most righteous. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, he's, he's literally probably the most righteous man in Israel at the time, or Judah at the time. All right, thank you, Lord. Undone. I would have become undone if I would have. But undone is a disintegration. And I hope this really drives the image home to you. He is literally becoming unglued. Because he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Do you feel that way before God? When you say grace at dinner, is it a quick check mark to just simply get through prayer so we can get to eating? How often do we ignore the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, the majesty of God, like Isaiah is experiencing here? We need a glimpse of the holiness of God to really understand not only our sin, but the cross. And so I would say here, <clears throat> This vision of Isaiah is meant to humble us. It's meant to level us and to make us tremble before a holy God. That is the reason I, I bring this passage up. And, and what I think here, I could be wrong. I, I look at Isaiah when the seraphim see that Isaiah is really struggling here. God doesn't say to him, Isaiah, you're overreacting. Come on, take it easy. Why are you so uptight? God doesn't say that. God says and commands the seraphim to come over with the hot coal and touches his mouth. The very place where he identified, I am a man of unclean lips. And he says to Isaiah, your sins are atoned for. That has to be the, the atoning work of Christ before Christ ever was on the cross. God for, you know, for example, just really quickly, when David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan told him, your sins are taken away or passed over. How can God do that if he's just? He does it because in his forbearance, he overlooked sins in the past 
but looked to Christ to redeem those sins because God is just. He is never going to have mercy. Listen to this. God will never have mercy at the expense of his justice. Never. Because he is a perfectly just God. So the thing here is that I look at this, this Isaiah was atoned for there by the very precious blood of Christ. Looking forward, that is. So we saw the setting. We saw the characters. We saw the seraphim here. Yet the real importance is the message, not necessarily the characters. And the message is this. Let's read this again in in verses 2 and 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can anyone tell me of a unique literary device being used in that passage? Yes, three times repetition. When we want to emphasize something in American culture, what do we do? What's that? Very. Yeah. Think of something even more so with like what we do with font. All caps. We underline, italicize. In ancient Israel, it's not uncommon. What they would do is use the emphasis of verbal repetition. Truly, truly. I say unto thee. How about with Galatians 1.9? But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Twice. To give the emphasis of importance. And here, when we see something emphasized and repeated three times, it is the very, to the superlative degree, it is as if the Lord is saying that my holiness is perfect. It is to the nth degree. And the thing about this is, it's fascinating, it's the only characteristic of God that is emphasized in that way. The only characteristic. You will never find anywhere in Scripture that says God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or that God is wrath, wrath, wrath. But only that He is holy, He is holy, and He is holy. Isaiah's response, woe is me, I am undone, is the same response that we must fight to keep in front of us as we seek to live day by day at the, in, in front of the eyes of the Lord of whom's, whose eyes is too pure to behold iniquity. There is in us humans a innate aversion when we come into contact with the holy. I'd like somebody to give me and venture a few adjectives or words that describe a human's reaction to holiness. Yes? Fear. Fear. Yeah. Shame. Shame. Avoidance. Avoidance. Humility. Humility. Yeah. 
I, that's what it's meant for us to do, is to humble us, for sure. R.C. Sproul gives a great one that I can't, I don't think I can improve on. You got anyone guess what that is? Anyone hear this before? It's trauma. Trauma. I'm a former EMT, and I've been in the ER, and I've seen a lot of trauma. And, and that is a very true way, I think, of the, the emotional, just complete, uh, I'm at a loss for words, to be honest with you, which uh, doesn't happen very often. But it's, it's something that we, we run from because we can't be in the presence of a holy God with our sin. You know, there's a recent survey, I don't know if you guys heard of this, but on Ligonier Ministries called the State of Theology. They do it every two years. You guys heard of that before? It's really interesting. It, it surveys the U.S. population as adults just indiscriminately, and then it vo- focuses down on evangelicals. So you can look at both. You can look at what does the general population think and what does the Christian population think or the evangelical population. And in 2022, to the question, in response to the question, even the smallest sin deserves damnation. So God is so holy that even the smallest sin deserves damnation. 69% of Americans disagreed with that. Evangelical Christians, one in every, uh, I'm sorry, four out of every 10 disagreed with that. 40% of evangelical Christians that were polled disagree with it. And, and if that is a good indicator, indicator of how we respond when we're confronted with God's holiness. I want to give you a couple examples scripturally of this. So Habakkuk, the short three-chapter book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk complained to God about his, you don't need to turn there, I'll just explain it. Um, He complained to God about the injustice that he saw around him, the evil in the community, the injustice that was being done. And he had the question, God, how can you continue to see this and not act? And he says in chapter 2, I am going to go to my watchtower until the Lord should give me an answer. And so he goes and he stands up at his watchtower and he waits and he waits and he waits until the Lord responds. And when the Lord does respond and and, and God says, I can use wicked nations like the coming Babylonians to raise them up to enact judgment upon the tribe of Judah and the kingdom of Judah and the Assyrians. Uzziah's response in verse 16 of the third chapter, Habakkuk says, I hear you, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound of his voice. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble before me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon us from the people who invade us. Another great example is Uzzah. Not to be confused with Uzziah, but Uzzah from um, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Are you familiar with this story? Uzzah, what, what very fascinating story. When I first read it, I was mad. Um, but if you remember, the story is that the Ark of the Covenant was being moved to Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, the Israelites thought that it would be a great idea to throw the Ark on an ox cart. Okay? And as the ox cart is moving along, one of the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah is next to it. Now, he's a Kohathite. And he was specifically taught from birth, or I should say as a child, that the one thing you never do, Uzzah, 
as a Kohathite. You never, ever, ever put your hands on the Ark of God, or you will surely die. There were rings that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant where poles would be put, placed through so that you could carry the Ark. It was supposed to be carried by foot, and you would never lay hands on it. And what happened? The oxen, oxen stumble. The Ark of God looks like it's coming off the cart, and it's going to be desecrated by falling into the mud. And Uzzah, what does he do? Instinctively, he places his hand on the Ark, and God strikes him DRT. You know what DRT stands for? Dead right there. He, he was not even a split second, no delay. Boom, he dies. God struck him immediately. King David, righteous King David, is so angry that he says, send the ark off. We do not want it. How can I take it to Jerusalem here with me? And what was your response when you first heard that story? Were you upset? Were you confused? Did you think God's character was maybe called into question? This is the problem with the lenses we have on. We are too busy looking at the mud instead of the brightness of the sun, of his holiness. You see, because the sin of, let me just ask a question. What was the sin of Uzziah then, or Uzzah? What was the sin? What was the sin? Yeah. That's, I would say about half correct. I think you're right, but I'm looking for a little bit more. Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the crazy thing is here is that Uzzah's sin was a presumptuous sin. He presumed to think that his hand was cleaner than the mud. He thought that his hand was not going to desecrate the, the Ark of God, but that the mud would. The mud, which is nothing more than dirt that has been doing what God ordained it to do since the creation of the world, which we have not been doing. That is the sin of Uzzah. And so that is why we need to see things from God's perspective. Um, one of the things that I find so fascinating is we so often think, God, like, why, why do you judge people this way? Why, do you, why are you so harsh? Like we see in the Old Testament. And a, a, believe it or not, a Roman Catholic theologian by the name of Hans Kung had a really great quote about this. And he said, the real puzzle isn't that a holy God would exercise justice. But the real mystery through generation after generation after generation is how God, holy God, tolerates rebellious creatures who continually commit cosmic treason against his authority. That's the question. It's not why God's so harsh in the Old Testament. It's, it's how is he so patient? How is he so loving that he sent a propitiation through Christ to turn away the wrath of God? You see, we are quick to excuse ourselves as our reaction is to look around us and judge ourselves with someone else. We're comfortable with our imperfection until we see the real standard. And folks, God doesn't grade on a curve, right? He is the straight edge. 
of the standard. And I pray that that recognition of his holiness, and as we delve into the sinfulness of sin next, will help you fight your sin. It's hard, when you have a glimpse of the holy, it becomes harder to walk in sin. Especially when you're redeemed. And I'll, and I'll get into that in a bit. Um, it's, it's well known that the appearance of any object is affected by the light that it's seen in, and the distance as well. Have you ever witnessed two people see the same exact thing and give completely different de descriptions, right? Well, like I said before, it's impossible to see sin for what it actually is without placing it in the light of God's holiness. You can't even really read the scriptures honestly without seeing that God and men differ widely on many different areas on different topics. Uh, for example, Edward Payson, who's a Puritan pastor in the 19th century, said this, that nothing can be more evident than the fact that in the sight of God, our sins, your sins, my sins, are incomparably more numerous, more aggravating, and more criminal than they appear to us. How does it sit with you? I'm just curious. Take a second here. How does it sit with you that your sin without Christ, right? Your sin alone without Christ is deserving, in God's opinion, of an endless punishment. An endless punishment. While we scarcely think we deserve any punishment at all. Beloved, we need to see, the, our, in, see our sins in the light of his presence. Um, let's turn real quick to Romans 2. Romans 2, verses 6 through 10. Any questions about anything so far? No? Okay, can I get someone to volunteer Romans 2, 6 through 10? Okay, go for it. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be rant and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Hmm. For God shows no partiality. Yeah, thank you. And let's, just for the sake of time, I'm going to read James chapter 2, verse 10 as well. And, I, and this is a great verse here in terms of really pivoting on how God sees sin. James 2.10 says, For whomever keeps the whole law, but you fail in one point. What does it say? You've been guilty of it all. Why? Because the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And even furthermore, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says that if you even not committing adultery, but if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you have been guilty of adultery. It's not just the act, it's the heart attitude. The heart embracing of that sin is a sin before God. Let's go to the next section. So we're going to move on to part number, uh, I believe in your notes, it's one, two, three, four. Uh, the essence of sin, right? Is that three or four? Oh, B, sorry. Well, we'll go to the essence of sin. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I want to throw a question out there. What makes sin so sinful? Or if to pose it a different way, 
what is the root of sin? Okay, our heart's affections. Yep. Choosing something instead of God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden instead of obeying God's word. They wanted, they wanted other thing. Yeah. And they thought it would give them the life instead of in, to rejection, in the rejection of God. Okay, very good. Any other? But, yeah, Jesse? I am God. I am God, that's very good, yes. That the heart isn't a vacuum. If you take God out of it, it will always worship something, whether it be, it's usually us. Um, Zach, you had something? It's related to both of those things. It's <coughs> concerning desire or other things over God. It's related to worship, what you worship God or something else, and it's related to God's rule. Yeah. It's usurping God's rule. That's right. Saying, I'm not going to submit to you. Yeah. I'm going to be the king and the God and follow Very good. Yes. No, I like it. I like it. No, uh, we see sin is lawlessness. I mean, that's a scriptural definition. It's the same thing. Rebellion and lawlessness are the same. Yes? It can also be not doing something that God commands. That's right. And let me say this to you. Uh, what is your name? Heim. Heim. Okay, Heim. What is the summation of the law? Wait, what's summation again? Summation means what is the... If you had to boil down in one oh, commandment... Oh, oh. Very good. The Shema says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And so my answer to this question would be the opposite of that. That to, to sin, the essence of sin. Like, I'm not talking about the tree. I'm not talking about the branches or the leaves. I'm talking about the root below the surface, like down here. What is the root of our sin? It is that we don't love God with all our heart. We love anything else more than God and what His Word is and what His Word commands us. That we, we see God and we want to replace Him. And, and we're going to get into this. If we could look at Romans chapter 1, the best place to get this definition, there's no other be- place in Scripture that's better, I, in my opinion, than Romans 1, uh, particularly for, starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, but for the sake of time, let's just go from 23 to 28. And it says here, um, well, actually, let me go back a few verses. Um, I'm going to, oh, heck, let's just read the whole thing. Uh, for, the, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress it. What are they suppressing? The knowledge of God, the truth. They suppress it. They don't want it. They squish it. And they don't want it to be here. For what can be known about God is plain to them because why? God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So here we see that in creation, they see that God is real, that he has evidenced himself and his power and his eternal purposes through the creation. And they know that God is there. But, and there's something coming up in verse 25 that I really can't wait to get to. But, but let's keep continuing in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts as a result were darkened. 
They claimed to be wise, yet they became fools. And here's where it is. They exchanged. They, they knew they could, that, that God was the true God, and yet they exchanged it. We don't want you in our thinking. Verse 23 again. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They took the image or, or the immortal God and they cast it away and they held on and instead replaced it. They substituted for images. And folks, like John Piper says, we are in an age more than any other of images. And, and what I love about Piper in this is he says, you know, it's irrelevant if it's an image or wood that when you are addicted to staring on a screen your phone or whatever it could be anything it doesn't have to be a screen but we cling to images and we we despise the immortal God verse 24 therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves here it is again. If, you, if, it's, if it's escaped you before, God's saying it again here. Because, why? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And here it is in verse 28. I want to call your attention to this verse. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Acknowledge God is a very bland translation here. What, what really is being said here is since they did not see fit to retain the knowledge of God in their minds and hearts, they, didn't, they, they knew when they looked at the, 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 the horizon of their, their lives and their existence, they, they knew that God deserved the center of their being and their attention, and they rejected it. We don't want you in our knowledge. That is the essence of sin a rejection, an exchanging of the glory of the rightful place of God for us to glorify and delight and enjoy in Him forever. And we reject Him for any image that suits us. So I will leave you with this, as you see in your notes. The essence of sin is that we choose things, love things, like things, do things that show we do not love God above those things. Sin is delighting in other things instead of the God most glorious. And don't be mis misunderstood. Don't, don't be confused here. There is no middle ground with sin. There is no halfway with sin. Sin is in 100% opposition actively against God. Louis Burkhoff, the famous theologian, said that sin is separation from God opposition to God and hatred of God.
that manifests itself in thought, word, and deed. I think of Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Think of this actively here, right? So I told you that sin is actively hating God in opposition to God. That verse ends by saying, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Is that not active? Active opposition towards God? The author of Sin the Devil in 1 John 3.8. Could somebody read that for us? 1 John 3.8. That's right. The author of sin is the devil. He was the one who first fell. Um, we look at sin in the heart. And I'm curious if someone can give me an, uh, 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 take a stab at what is the biblical definition of the heart? What is the biblical definition of the heart? Center of emotions and the will and the, all of the unseen parts of who we are, like our, our soul. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. I, so in scriptural psychology, again, it is the central organ of our soul. You know, we think of Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. Right? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Desperately sick, who can understand it? Could somebody turn to Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20? I get a volunteer. Thank you, Kev. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Yeah, thank you. The feet of unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's right. And Jesus enumerates there more clearly all those heart attitudes, right? Um, you know, sin emanates like a stone thrown in a pond out from, it just ripples out from our hearts. And sin finds its root in our heart, in our corrupt nature, that is, <clears throat> which is the basis for the sinful attitudes, the habits which express itself. See, there's a, there's a difference. Like, we kind of talked about this a little bit with the spread of sin last, last week, but, you know, better yet... Oh, man. Um, I want to see if I can find it here. I think it's in Romans 7. Yeah, here it is. Romans 7, verse 8. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Wait a second. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me other sins? Okay, wait, I get other sins. I get covetousness as a sin. I know that sin. But what about this other sin? What about sin number one? 
What, what's he talking about here? Anyone want to venture a guess? Lyle, I know you know this. Our original center, sin, sin nature. Yeah. Our sin nature, the nature, our sinful nature. leads to what our where the heart is the our heart attitudes and sometimes theologians describe this as habits right and then out of these attitudes come every type of sin amplified by the law lust pride Greed, you name it, it all finds its foundation in the corrupted original sin that we inherited from Adam. Does that make sense? And so that is how sin is emanating from our corrupted nature out to what we say, to the inward hearts where Jesus identifies. He says, if you, if you are angry at your brother, that's murder. What, Jesus? Are you, how could that be? Do you see why we need a Savior so desperately? You should see on your handout there a little point that says the sins of the redeemed. I just want to take a second here to talk about the sins of the redeemed. That when a Christian sins, someone who has tasted the goodness of God, who has heard the good news in firsthand experience the forgiveness of Christ from all these sins and continues in sin if they continue without any type of repentance without any kind of concern I'd worry that they're maybe not a Christian but I just wanted you to know that like when a Christian sins in some senses it's more sickening and twisted than the sins of wicked men because we have tasted the goodness of God we are the recipients of his grace. And so I say that not as a means of condemnation because those are under the, the blood of Christ. And I want to be careful here because in Romans 7, we're, we understand that Paul's talking about a Christian there and that there is sin nature still residing in us, that we're fighting. So my encouragement to you is fight the fight. But fight it with the, with the, with the knowledge that that sin is reprehensible to God given the knowledge that you've been chosen to receive. Right? Use it as a weapon to fight your sin. And, I, and I'm not going to go over them because we're running out of time, but, I, but 2 Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world and though through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled, again, and overcome, they are worse in that state than they were before. And again, in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, your sinful, corrupt nature, are against the Spirit, which you, as a believer, you have a new nature. You are, thank God, given a heart that is renewed. Conclusion. Where the holiness of God meets our sin is at the cross. We have discussed now the holiness of God as well as the sinfulness of sin, which leads us to this point. 
If we do not see sin's great offense to a holy God, we can't understand the cross correctly. When we minimize our sin, we minimize the cross. Isaiah 53, 5-6 says that... Actually, um, could somebody turn there and read it for me? Isaiah 53, 5-6. Yeah. He was pierced. He was crushed. And to ensure we understand the substitutionary nature of his coming and whose wrath that he would propitiate, I want to read verses 10 and 11 as well. In the same passage, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Take for a second and just stop. Just stop and think about when you were justified, and you first heard that God looked at you from a legal perspective and said that you are righteous. That you were imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And let me flip that for a second and say to Jesus, what happened to him? What was imputed to Jesus was your sin. He was crushed and forsaken by the Father because of your sin, the sin that Isaiah had in chapter 6. From all of time in the past, how was David justified? Do you think it was by his righteousness? He was justified by looking forward to the Christ. All of time, of all those who are the elect, every sin that you've long forgotten about was laid on Christ that day and paid for. And here, another thing I just want to take a second to stop and think about. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Take a second and just stop again. Just stop and think about this. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. There was not a time in your life that you loved God the way that He deserves to be loved. There was never a moment that you, in actual thought, word, and deed, glorified God in a way that was deserving of Him. Jesus, on the other hand, every moment of His time here on earth loved God as God deserves to be loved. He glorified God in every way that God deserves to be glorified. He loved God 
according to the Shema that we talked about, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then in the great exchange, He gave that to you. So that when Christ, when God the Father sees you, not only did Christ give you the propitiation of His blood to turn away the wrath of God. So propitiation is a theological term that simply means that through the shedding of Christ's blood, all the anger that you deserve to face for an eternity was satisfied in Christ. So now your, your sins, you're out of the negative at that point, but you don't stop there with Christ. Christ then also, secondly, imputed to you his perfect obedience and love of God the Father. So when God would be unjust when you sin to not forgive you, do you understand that? How often when you sin today do you say to yourself, like, I can't believe I did that. Like, what in the world did I... And, and you will think in some way, if you're anything like me, that by rehearsing it in your mind and making yourself feel bad, that that has some type of merit to it. That's not the gospel. Like, it is solely because of the righteous one, the, the lamb who was spotless, that was slain for you. I hope you understand that I'm trying to give you tools to fight your sin that you struggle with when no one else is looking. Understand the holiness of God. See Him for who He is. See your sin for what it is. And then see the love that He has, that He sacrificed so that He could satisfy not only His justice, but provide you with mercy. Lastly, I'll say this. Christ died. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this last part. Christ died and did all this. What? For what reason? So that you may partake of His holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children then, no longer be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him His Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. With that, I'll, I'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you that this topic of the nature of sin can't be just academically examined impartially with no feeling. Lord, would you please grant us that we would walk away from here today with our hearts ashine like Moses' face was as we witness your glory and your, your holiness and that our hearts are filled with the love that you have poured out on those that you have redeemed. I pray for those here who are struggling with secret sin. Lord, that the light of your countenance would know that it is laid bare before you. That, Lord, they would run to you, receive the forgiveness that is won them by Christ.
and that they would use these discussions that we talked about to fight and realize that either sin will be killing them if they aren't killing sin. And we pray all these things in Christ's name.